<laughs> Thanks, Bill. We like to like just tag team the prayer. <laughs> yeah, just, he sets them up, I knock them out. Let's go. No, that's all right. Uh, hey, this is one of those messages, by the way, that my chair down there needs a seatbelt. Uh, because I'm so just anxious to come and share with the, the good news of it. I have to like train myself to stay in my seat and not jump up here. So I'm so excited about what we're going to dive into today. So go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. As you do, uh, by way of reminder, I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in a summer sermon series, which is hard to say, uh, called Encountering Jesus, where we are looking at what happens when people come face to face with Jesus. And how he changes everything. So I was reminded actually this week in my sermon prep of something one of our elders, Jim Zellner, uh, told me a few months ago. He said that whenever someone encountered Jesus in the Gospels, he was always forcing them to make a choice. He was drawing a line in the sand. Uh, and I do believe that was true in the Gospels when people were encountering Jesus then. And I believe it's true for us today when we're encountering Jesus so our encounter today, like I said, is from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And so as uh, you guys are flipping there or turning on your phone, uh, I will read it and just listen along. I'm going to read the whole story, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them, and he came to them, bringing them a paralytic carrying by, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, said to them, what do you, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. So let's jump into the story and this encounter together. And as we do, we're going to ask and answer three questions from this story. Why did Jesus say that? How could Jesus say that? And what happens when Jesus says that? Now, what is the that, you ask? Well, great question. Let's look at that together. So let's jump back to Mark 2, verse 1 again, and let's look back at that first half of the story together and ask, why did Jesus say that? So let's read with me again this first half of the story. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. 
And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So if you're familiar with the gospel of Mark, you know that the gospel has like a quick pace to it. So here already in chapter two, Jesus has been baptized overcome temptation in the wilderness, began his preaching ministry, called disciples, and performed great healing miracles. So chapter two opens with Jesus doing what he told the disciples back in chapter one was the reason he was there in the first place when he said this, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So that's what he's doing, preaching in a house. And so many people gathered around that there's literally no more space for anyone to join. And while he's preaching, suddenly some dust starts falling from the ceiling. And then like little shafts of light start breaking through from above. And the ceiling starts to be peeled back. And you see a group of friends creating a hole in the roof big enough for a person to be lowered through. And on a bed a paralyzed man descending before Jesus and the gathered crowds. And it must have been quite the sight. So can you imagine like all of a sudden the hole like above us breaks through and we see somebody lowering somebody down while I'm preaching? That would be pretty crazy. And Jesus, seeing these men who are risking humiliation and were willing to damage someone's house so that their friend could encounter Jesus, he looks at them and commends their faith and then turning to the paralytic says words no one was expecting to hear. Son, your sins are forgiven. What? <laughs> Jesus, no, no, the line is rise and walk. You missed us. Try it again. Take it from the top. No, but Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. So we ask, why did Jesus say that? Okay, so to answer that, I actually want to ask a question to all of us. So this is going to be some audience participation, so you're going to have to shout out an answer. So here's the question. When you think about all the messaging we hear all day, every day, from advertisers, voices on the news, from our social media feeds, even from family and friends, in all of these messages, what are we being told is our biggest problem that needs to be fixed? The thing that if this gets solved, we will finally be truly and fully happy. So again, there's multiple answers here, but what do you think we're being told? This is your biggest problem that needs to be solved. What do you think? Money. That's right. What? I'm sorry, was it? Fame. Notoriety. New car. That's right. We were joking with somebody at first service. Not just a new car, but with a bow. Yeah. And on Christmas Eve and with everybody in your house sipping hot chocolate and everybody's happy. That's exactly. No, what else? Vacation, experiences, living that Instagram life. What are you doing with your life if you're not vacationing everywhere? All right, what else? Be authentically you. Authentically you. Just be yourself. Express yourself. Then you'll finally fully be happy. What else? This is, this is second service, so we can go for like an hour. This is good. No. Appearance. If you can just lose that weight or do that makeup tutorial, or if you can just get, you know, those ripped abs. Um, hey, by the way, on that note, this is a free nugget of advice on Father's Day. Hey, guys, fathers, if your kids or your wife are giving you a hard time because of your dad bod, just remind them it's not a dad bod. It's a father figure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Write that down. Take that down. Yeah. 
That's the most applause I've gotten in two and a half years of preaching here. <laughs> that right there. That's good. No, we could keep going, right? And advertisers, social media feeds, on the news, everywhere we're being told, this is your problem, and if you solve it, you'll finally and fully be happy. But let's be honest, all too often, it's not just the voices out there that are telling us what our biggest problem is, it's our own voice in here. We tell ourselves that our soul's happiness is just a change of circumstance away, that if our biggest problem is loneliness, that lasting happiness is just a relationship or a hookup or even just a marriage away. If our biggest problem is self-worth, that losing 10 pounds or getting that job or degree or into that program or changing our gender or sexuality will give us the love and acceptance we long for and will justify our existence on this planet. If our biggest problem is a lack of control or power, then achieving that promotion or electing this person or making more money will give us our lasting peace. Or maybe, like our friend in the story, real genuine health concerns seem to dominate our life. And we think, if only we could be healed, then we'd never be sad or discontent again, ever. Whatever we think our biggest problem is, we believe we are just a change of circumstance away from solving it and finally being forever happy. But deep down, we know that's not true. We've seen too many stories of the lottery winners who thought money would solve their problems only for it to destroy their lives. We've seen those who climb the social or career ladders thinking contentment would be at the top only to be disillusioned and empty that it didn't deliver what it promised. We've seen how serial relationships never satisfy the longing to end our loneliness. And some of us have even found even marriage didn't take our loneliness away. And with those suffering through real health concerns, a desire for healing is good, but we know that healthy bodies alone can't protect us from broken hearts, bitter hurts, and brooding fears. So I have a pastor friend in Austin, Texas, and in his congregation is one of the uh, top YouTube content makers, a young man making a ridiculous amount of money through his videos. But this young man also knows and loves Jesus. So my friend was telling me that, that this young man goes to LA for meetings with all these other mega rich YouTube creators who have all the money in the world and all the fame and all the following, everything their hearts desire. They have everything that they were promised would fix their problems. And they are miserable empty and hollow. Why? Because their biggest problem still remains. So back to our story here in Mark. If we asked him, what do you think the paralytic would say his biggest problem was? Well, it's pretty obvious. His paralysis. So to paraphrase one commenter I read, what's so astounding in this passage is that Jesus is essentially looking down at a paralyzed man who's saying back up to him, Jesus, my biggest problem is my paralysis. My greatest need is healing from my suffering. And Jesus, with a heart of compassion, says to him, son, no, it's not. Jesus is saying, ending your physical pain, it's coming. Ending your suffering, it's coming. And life is full of real problems, injustices, suffering, unfulfilled longings, and we will deal with those in due time, but we have to deal with your biggest problem first. The first thing we have to deal with, your biggest problem 
is your sin. Your sin, your heart that is dead to God, shown in trying to live your life your own way, on your own terms, by your own rules, a life apart from God, that's your biggest problem. So it reminds me of a story uh, in the Old Testament of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. So Naaman was this super powerful, rich commander of the Syrian army and a worshiper of false Syrian gods. So when he contracts leprosy, a nasty, highly contagious skin disease where you lose feeling in your body and, and literally your body falls apart. So in his desperation, he's willing to go see the prophet of Israel, Elisha, for healing. So he, he loads up his chariot and brings with his riches and ends up outside Elisha's house, offering the prophet riches to heal him. Elisha doesn't even leave his house to see Naaman but he sends a messenger telling Naaman to keep his money and to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and the true God would heal him. Well, Naaman, a man of power, of riches and pride, thought he demanded more respect and is highly insulted. That Elisha doesn't even come to meet him. That Elisha is not impressed by his wealth and prestige. And he's instructed to simply go bathe like a commoner. So Naaman just leaves unhealed. And it's not until his servant stops and begs Naaman to humble himself and do what Elisha says, does Naaman return, go down to the Jordan, bathe and receive his miraculous healing. And then it says that Naaman goes to the man of God, Elisha, he goes this, and says, then he, Naaman, returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So what happened? Well, Naaman was indeed miraculously healed, but it wasn't the healing of the leprosy of his skin that showed God's greatest miracle. It was the healing of his leprous heart. Naaman's body was deadened to feeling the world around him, but his heart was deadened to feeling God. And which is more dangerous? Which is more fatal? Which is a bigger problem? So in his forgiveness and mercy, God heals Naaman of his biggest problem, a sinful, deadened, idolatrous heart. God offered Naaman what money power, pride, fame, and all the false gods with all their false promises and messaging couldn't. God offered Naaman himself forgiveness of sins and a new heart now alive to God. Now, friends, I'll be honest. I can think of no more offensive or more difficult concept to try to convince people of today than this, that your biggest problem is you. My biggest problem is me. Our sinful hearts before a holy God. We live in a world where the enemy is always out there. The problem is always out there. But what's in here is what's pure and trustworthy. And what does Jesus say? With eyes full of grace and truth, he looks to us and says, Son, daughter, I am the good physician. And the truth is, you are a sinner. Your biggest problem isn't out there. It's not in your circumstance. It's in here. But take heart, 
I came to heal what's in here. I came to forgive what's in here. Son, your sins are forgiven. Why did Jesus say that? Because that was what the paralytic's biggest problem was and what he needed to hear most. And it's what Jesus came to do, to seek and to save the lost from our greatest problem, our sin. And again, let's be clear, on the surface, this seems super insulting, right? And it stings a little bit. Like Naaman, we have to humble ourselves and lay down our pride and our control and surrender and submit to God and acknowledge that, yes, we are sinners living as gods of our own lives and guilty of the selfish and evil choices we make trying to replace God's rule over our lives. So like a good antiseptic on an infected wound, the sting to our pride is the sting that actually heals that leads us to the only solution to we have to our greatest problem. So let's continue on moving from why would Jesus say that to how could Jesus say that? So Jesus says what was on no one's mind, son, your sins are forgiven. And what gives him the audacity to proclaim forgiveness on someone's sins? How could Jesus say that? Well, as we see, we're not the only ones asking that question. Let's pick it up again back in verse 6. And seven says this. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So first off, let's do something we normally don't do. And let's cut the scribes some slack. Why did they respond like this? Claiming in their hearts that Jesus must be blaspheming. Because they believed that only God had the authority to forgive sins, and they weren't wrong. But where does this idea come from, that God alone can forgive sins? So one great place to look is back at the story of David and Bathsheba. So if you're familiar with the story, you'll remember that King David, when he should have been out to war with his army, was back at home on the roof of his house, and David saw Bathsheba bathing, and in his lust an abuse of power, brought Bathsheba to himself, slept with her, and she became pregnant. Now, that was bad because Bathsheba wasn't David's wife. But it was worse because she was Uriah's wife. So David hatches a scheme to try to cover his sins and ends up actually committing murder by sending Uriah, her husband, off to die in battle. So David has lied, committed adultery, abused his power, and sent an innocent man to his death. So about a year later, the prophet Nathan calls him out. And in David's brokenness and confession and repentance, he pens Psalm 51. Here's what David confesses to God in verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wait a second. Against you and you only have I sinned? How can David say that? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba or against Uriah, against all of God's people whom he lied to? Like, how can David write against you, God, alone have I sinned? Well, what David is articulating here is this, that all of us have been created 
We exist by the will and desire of God. We owe everything to him. And in creating us, God has claim over us and a purpose for us to honor him, to enjoy him and to worship him. And as God, he has set his good law upon our hearts on how we should live, how we should honor him and care for one another. Don't lie, don't cheat. God's saying it's going to be better if you don't kill each other, right? And that law over us is not simply a moral code, but it stems from God's very nature. The holiness of God's law reflects the holiness of God's heart. So to break the law of God is also to deny the truth and worth of God. So for example, what happens when we sin and we lie to someone? Not only are we denying the moral law of God, God commands that we don't lie, and we break that law by denying him and lying, but we are also saying in that moment, God, whatever I can get by lying, by sinning and by denying you, is better than what I can get by trusting you and honoring you. In other words, whatever I get by lying is greater, more worthy, more valuable to me than you, God, and your honor. So when I lie, I'm saying, God, I call the shots, and you don't, and I want what my lie offers more than I want you and what you offer. When I lust, God, I call the shots, and what this lust gets me is more valuable to me than you are. When I'm lazy or selfish or harsh or whatever I do knowingly or unknowingly when I sin, not only am I breaking the moral law of God, I'm committing idolatry every time because I'm saying that what I want to serve with my life is not God in his glory, but myself in my glory. So do you see every sin, even as it harms others and harms ourself, is ultimately a sin against our holy God, who made us, who ordained how the world should operate in the authority of his moral goodness. And each sin is ultimately an act of idolatry against God because we're saying something else is greater and more worthy of our devotion and can offer us more than he can. So yes, David, against God and God alone, have you sinned? Yes, scribes, only God can forgive because only God has truly been sinned against. So you remember when I said uh, that I was reminded of Jim Zellner and the words he told me about encountering Jesus. And it always means that Jesus is going to force you to make a choice. He's going to draw a line in the sand. Well, in our story right now is where Jesus pulls out his stick. Let's continue reading verses uh, uh, 8 through 11. Back to our story. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise pick up your bed and go home. So firstly, it's always a little unsettling when Jesus answers people's thoughts. Just chew on that for a second. But Jesus says to them, why are you questioning me? What's easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or 
get up and walk. The assumption of that answer is, well, of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. There's no outward evidence of that. But a miraculous healing, like everyone can see that. So Jesus turns, tells them that as the son of man, a messianic title, Pastor John walked us through last week, that Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins and he miraculously heals the paralytic, commands him to rise and demonstrates his power. That question the scribes had in verse seven was why does this man speak like this? And Jesus' answer, because I'm like no other man you've ever met. Jesus, the son of man is the son of God. God incarnate, Emmanuel, means God with us. And we don't have enough time to fully dive deep into the doctrine of what's called the hypostatic union, but it's that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. But that's what Jesus is proclaiming here. Only God can forgive sins, and I can forgive sins because I am God. Jesus is the second person of the mystery of the Trinity, one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So just check this out. <laughs> what Jesus is saying here is that every sin committed against God has been committed against him because he is God. Now, clearly the scribes didn't see Jesus this way. They didn't understand that Jesus is God in flesh, but this was the line Jesus was drawing. Yes, your biggest problem is sin. Yes, God alone can forgive sins. Yes, I have the authority to forgive sins because those sins were against me. I am God with you. Another way of thinking about it is when you encounter Jesus, you encounter God. And this is monumental. Friends, who is Jesus to you? Is he just someone you come to church for and you're willing to give a shot if he can give you the fixes to those lesser problems we talked about? Jesus, I'll follow you if you'll get me that spouse. Jesus, I'll follow you if you can help my business succeed. Jesus, I'll follow you if you can get my party in power or my marriage on track or take away my suffering or make sure my kids turn out this way. Jesus, I'll follow you if you can agree to my terms of our arrangement. Now, is that coming to Jesus as God? Or is it coming to Jesus as your assistant? So, here, before the crowd, Jesus draws a line in the sand, saying, I'm here to solve your biggest problem, to offer you what no one else can, forgiveness for your sin. And how can I offer it? Because I'm the one you sinned against. I am the Lord over all creation. I am the one who made you, who sustains you, and the one God you owe everything to. Jesus is saying, if you don't have me as God in your life, you don't have me at all. And if you don't have me, you don't have my forgiveness. A line in the sand. Friends, who is Jesus to you? Is he a teacher, a moral suggestion maker? Is he a genie that you hope will help you grant your wishes? Or is he the God who made you? who came to rescue you and Lord of your life. So how could Jesus say that? Your sins are forgiven? Because he is 
God. But also, he knows where his story is going. That he doesn't just grant forgiveness, he is our forgiveness. He doesn't just sweep our sins under the rug. No, that's not justice. That's not righteousness. That's not goodness. No, evil must be held to account. Sin must be condemned. So our creator, God in flesh, Jesus, the one we sinned against, took the just punishment our sin deserved for us on the cross. The full weight of God's holy wrath against our wickedness and idolatry poured out upon him on the cross. We just sang about it. Because that's what our sin deserved. And that's what our forgiveness cost. The Son of Man executed so we could be redeemed, shredded so we could be healed, forsaken so we could be restored, cast out so we could be brought in, condemned so we could be forgiven. How could Jesus say your sins are forgiven? Because he is both the God we sinned against and the Savior who suffered for as sin in our place. Now think about this. I don't care if you've heard the gospel 10,000 times. Let this hit you again. This is crazy. <laughs> the very one we owed our debt to is the one who paid the debt for us. Let that sink in. So, how could Jesus say that? Well, another question that's just as important. What happens when Jesus says that? So in our, in our encounter with the paralytic, Jesus pronounces his forgiveness as Savior. He proves his authority as God. The paralytic is healed through and through, body and soul. And what is the result? Well, let's look in verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. They were all amazed and glorified God because it was true. They had never seen anything like Jesus and what he can do. So we ask, what happens when Jesus says that? When he says, child, your sins are forgiven. Amazement and glorifying God at what Jesus has done for us. But specifically, specifically what happens when a person hears from Jesus and believes these words, your sins are forgiven. So again, we don't have much, enough time, and I wish we did, but too quickly, let me just share three thoughts. When we hear those words, what happens? First, we get a new life with God. The sin that kept us from God is no longer a barrier to knowing him. We are a new creation. That leprous heart that was dead to God is made new and alive in him. This new life with God is one that no longer has to look to this world to try and find meaning and hope and acceptance and peace and answers to those brokenhearted questions because we have everything that we long for in Jesus. We have it by the cross and resurrection. We have it because Jesus is who our hearts were made for and he alone gives us the salvation we need. Our new life with God our sin forever forgiven, Christ's righteousness forever credited to us, he has made us new. 
Hearing your sins are forgiven means we are a new creation with a new heart and have a new life with God. Second, we get a new hope. A new hope for our real but smaller problems. So I want you to think about this. If Jesus wouldn't abandon us at our worst, in our biggest problem, sinful hearts that rejected and rebelled and denied God and his glory, the very reason Jesus had to take our cross, if Jesus wouldn't abandon us then, then surely he won't abandon us ever. In our loneliness, in our fears, our doubts, our sufferings, our struggles, our anxieties, even in our ongoing battle against sin, if Jesus stayed with us, pursued us, and loved us through our biggest problem, he will surely be with us and carry us through all our problems. We get a new hope for today's problems. And thirdly, we get a new future. Because here's the beauty of God's forgiveness for our sins is that when he solves our biggest problem, all our other problems get solved with it. Here's what I mean. The reason Jesus can forgive our sins is because of the cross, where he not only took the condemnation for our sin, but he defeated the curse of sin across all of creation. Everywhere there is death, Brokenness, evil, injustice, loneliness, fear, anxiety, violence, want, poverty, everywhere the curse is found, Jesus has defeated the curse by becoming the curse for us. And when Jesus stepped out of that tomb alive, he was the first fruits of a world that's coming, where sin and death and the curse are no more, every tear wiped away. When you read the Gospels, when you see the life of Jesus and every miracle Jesus performs, it isn't just simply an exercise of his supernatural power. Those miracles are to give us a glimpse into the coming world where the curse of sin is undone. Casting out demons, healing of broken and diseased body, calming the chaos of nature and weather, and culminating in the calling of the dead to rise again to new life, all of these miracles is Jesus saying, I came to bring the world you were made for, you long for, and that you lost in your sin when you lost me. But I have come to bring you back, back to God and back to what you were made to be by the cross and resurrection, where your sin is forgiven and the curse is defeated, and a new future is secure with me. The psalmist wrote about the reality of when we are with God in his very presence by saying this, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the future hope for the forgiven. Being in the presence of God, in the fullness of joy, with pleasures forevermore, all because Jesus has defeated sin and its curse by the cross. So that not only is our greatest problem solved, but every other problem with it. As C.S. Lewis so eloquently said about what we have in Jesus, he wrote this. He says, look for yourself and you will only find in the long run uh, only hatred, loneliness, 
despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Encountering Jesus, the God who made us, the Savior who forgives us, the joy of every longing heart. So I want to conclude uh, this way. There are many good things you might hear spoken to you over you in your life. You got the job. <laughs> Congratulations on finishing the project. You've been accepted this. Someone might say to you, or maybe has even said to you, I do. One of my personal favorite things to hear, happy Father's Day, Daddy, I love you. But nothing compares to the words our souls are desperate to hear. When our God, the one who made us and the one we owe everything to, the one we've turned from, rejected and denied, the one who we alone have sinned against, and the one who came to us, took our cross for us, and defeated the power of sin for us. When this one turns to us and says, child, your sins are forgiven. Only those words truly redeem a person. Only those words bring a hope to never dim or die. Only those words set us free. Only those words bring us back to God. And only those words leave us forever amazed and glorifying God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Friends, have you heard those words from Jesus? Hear them now. Your sins are forgiven. But don't only hear them. Give yourselves to them. Trust Jesus. Believe. Stop trying to live life without him. Stop trying to be your own God. Stop trying to solve your problems yourself or look into this world to answer things that they cannot answer Look only to Jesus and hear him say, your, uh, your sins are forgiven. Receive his forgiveness. And with that, a new life with God, a new hope in the problems of this life, and a new future of forever joy with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that you are God that you are Savior. Lord, we confess that we are sinners and our only hope is a rescue outside of ourselves. Our only hope is Jesus, that you came, lived the perfect life we should have lived. You died on the cross to endure God's wrath of our sin that we deserved. And in your resurrection to new life, you offer us complete forgiveness that our debt has been paid in full. So Lord, I pray in this room right now, if there's those watching online, I know that in this room, whether they've heard it for the first time today or they've heard it for years, there are people who have never fully trusted and believed in the forgiveness of their sins only through Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. They would stop running from you, stop even playing the churchy game, and like Naaman, just bow down in humility and say, save me, forgive me. And Lord, may they feel the new life and new hope and new future that comes by having forgiveness in Christ. And I pray for our church family, those that do know you, that have heard the words 
your sins are forgiven and have believed, that we would receive that joy new today, just like the first time we heard it. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. And Lord, that we would take that new life and new hope and new future with us and proclaim Jesus in everything that we do. Lord, hear our voices and hear our hearts as we turn to you in song and praise our King who has forgiven us. Amen.